Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can find a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. That's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness, meditation, and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. All right, today is a special day for me. My guest is actually a, a former company officer of mine when I was at the Naval Academy, Charles Smith. Charles has created a life focused on service to others, first in the military as a US Marine, then as a financial advisor and branch manager, and most recently as an advocate and bone marrow donor. And it's not by accident. He thrives on making a difference in the lives of others and is intentional about striving to achieve that. It's what drives him to be his very best every day for his clients and his community. Charles is a servant leader leader, and passionate veterans advocate participating in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation's Hiring Our Heroes initiative and as a board member of the mission-based Semper Fi Society of St. Louis. He recently had the honor of becoming a TED Talk speaker on the topic of veteran suicide, which is obviously near and dear to our hearts at Veterans Path. Stay tuned as we're going to learn a lot more about Charles here on today's episode of the Veterans Path podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is Marine Corps veteran, financial advisor, and veteran advocate Charles Smith, or as I know him, Chuck Smith. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you having me today. Yeah, as I was mentioning in the intro, and just in case our listeners skipped it, uh, Chuck was actually a company officer of mine when I was a midshipman back at the Naval Academy. So having him here as a guest on my show uh, 21 years later, uh, I never would have guessed that I would be sitting here uh, interviewing you for for the podcast here on, on YouTube and on the podcast podcast platforms. So Chuck, you shared a, a great bio and lots of stuff in there. I obviously just uh, touched on it in the intro and it's really more uh, of for us to discuss during the show. But first off, let's, let's start with your life in the Marine Corps. Uh, where did you start? What did you do? Where did you serve during your time in the Marine Corps? Yeah, so um, b- before I get into that, I'm gonna have to move inside because sure. my phone is gonna overheat. 
<laughs> and I don't want to lose you. Um, so let me let me get out of this beautiful sun I've got here and uh, get to a cooler place. I, I wish I had thought through those logistics before I sat down there. <laughs> All good. Um, uh, as we were saying before, just via text, uh, authenticity these days is great um, because everybody's still working from home or a lot of people are still working from home. So everybody understands shifting around and moving around. Yeah. So there we go. All right. Perfect. Um, so, I, you know, I started out uh, as any Marine. I went through the basic school in Quantico, Virginia, and um, uh, I had always wanted to be an infantry officer. And so that, in fact, uh, came true for me and went through infantry officer course. And then, you know, once I did that, I, I served all over the world. So I served in the Caribbean, in the Middle East, the Far East, and um, basically anywhere that the Marine Corps sent me. And uh, it took me some pretty interesting spots throughout the world. And, um, you know, it's funny how life takes its turns and, and twists. And, and uh, as you mentioned um, earlier, we, uh, we spent uh, time together at the Naval Academy. And uh, in 2000, when I left, that was the last time that you and I have actually seen each other until today. Right. So um, I, I think, you know, what we're both interested in and what we're both trying to help um, drive change in is, is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And, and hopefully we can do that uh, simply by uh, force of will and, and coming up with solutions and answers that might be better than what's out there today. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into, you know, how you ended up being a TED talker or TED speaker rather. Um, and, and the topic there that you covered in the con in the conversation or in the talk. Um, before I get into that though, um, when you did leave the Naval Academy, you went where, and then you transitioned out in 2003, correct? That, yeah, that's correct. So after I was at the Naval Academy as a company officer, I, I went to uh, Amphibious Warfare School, which is about a, it's a, about a year-long school. And really what it's designed to do is, is get people ready to be uh, a CEO of their next company and, and a in addition to that, also be an operations officer. So you really study about the planning process and how do we get from point A to point B, how do we get a mission accomplished using the, the resources and tools that we have? And, and then really how do we communicate it and do it in a way that's, that's a commonality amongst the entirety of the Marine Corps. So when I put out a plan or I put out an operation order, um, everybody can understand it, regardless if you're an infantryman, if you're a pilot, if you're a logistician, um, everybody understands and is operating off the same common order that, uh, that we use throughout the Marine Corps. Um, and so after amphibious warfare school, um, I then went to 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines and uh, took over the weapons company in that battalion and uh, deployed with them and uh, came back from deployment in the summer of 2003. And then I transitioned out um, in September of that year. September 30th uh, was the actual date of my uh, departing the Marine Corps. Got it. So that that tour is what I think what I want to talk about through the conversation. But before we get more into depth on that particular uh, that particular tour, um, how was your transition? How did that feel for you? So for, for me, the transition um, was not that difficult. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because from the, my earliest ages, I grew up in the New York City area, just in, in a suburb outside of Manhattan in Connecticut. And um, I knew I was going to get into the financial services industry. My father was in the financial services industry. If you live anywhere around New York, you're probably in the financial services industry or you know somebody that's in it. 
And so uh, I knew that's what I was going to do. However, um, I want to serve our country. And, and I'm the grandson of immigrants uh, to this nation. And I looked at what this nation has done for my family. And, and I want to give back. I want to make sure that I served uh, our country. And what I never expected was that I would be in for as long as I was. Uh, you know, I thought I was going to go in, do my time, and get out. And so I actually uh, went to Naval County Prep School. And I reported there on July 29th of 1988. And, uh, you know, I did my year there. I then did four years at Annapolis. And then, um, you know, I thought I'd do my five years. And then somehow uh, somebody who was really good at, uh, at selling me on the Marine Corps kept me around for another, another five years. So I wound up, I did a total of 10 plus a little over 10 years uh, in the Marines. Um, and so it's it just, again, it's interesting how the world works and how things happen and, and um, how things have come about. It, it certainly is that, uh, like, if, if you had asked me when you were my company officer if I would uh, be a commander, uh, I would have said, no way. And then, uh, I don't know if you remember Chris Miller, Matt Cave, and Kenny Del Mezzo. We've, we've all made o, O5s. Uh, so, as a matter of fact, Kenny just turned over command. Uh, and uh, I think he's probably going to be the one of us that puts on full bird or wow. maybe even some stars, which is, which is just wild to think about. <laughs> That's great. That, yeah. that is great. That is yeah, great. And, so. and um, you know, it's funny when you think about, um, you know, you probably never could have imagined 20 years ago that, that we'd be sitting down talking no about this and, and no not way. only that, but, but, you know, so I, I got promoted to major um, several uh, three, four months before I, I got out. So the truth is you're, you're senior to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's insane. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, just a little a little additive to that story. Um, when I was a junior at the Naval Academy and, and Chuck was my company officer, um, uh, he had recommended me to be the brigade commander, which is the senior midshipman at the, at the uh, yard. The yard is what we call it at the academy. Um, and I went in for my interview for the brigade commander, and that same night i ended up getting in trouble for driving my car on the yard as a as a junior um driving a car on the yard uh, as a junior is not allowed and i got in trouble for doing it so so almost the very next day after uh being held in high esteem by chuck i was uh <laughs> suddenly on the other end of that spectrum <laughs> so you, you it's, know, it's always funny to think about I, I don't know if i said it or not uh, if I didn't say it, I certainly was thinking it. But uh, when that happened, I was like, "Well, you can, ki can kiss brigade commander goodbye." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure you did say it. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I ended up being company officer the following year, or sorry, co company commander the following yeah, year. And, uh, right. I think that was a better fit for for me anyhow. So. Oh no! Uh, listen, that's that's probably that and platoon commander, midshipman platoon commander, probably two best jobs you can get. Yeah. Maybe even squad yeah. leader. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I. I I agree. I agree. So yeah, I just had to add that little uh, flavor to the story. I, so, I had forgot. I had forgotten about that till you just mentioned it. <laughs> I figured this much. It was much bigger in my eyes than it probably was in yours. Uh, so okay. So going back to your last tour, then, um, your, was it during your last tour that something happened that? made you get involved in in the area that you are now as a as a veteran advocate yeah so uh the exo of my my company um uh he you know it was it was crazy so i i got i mean and, and i'm not going to get specifically into what my battalion 
uh, what was going on in my battalion. Um, uh, just cause I don't want to talk about that, but, sure. um, the, uh, my executive officer who was just a fantastic, uh, man, um, sub- subsequent to us getting back from the particular deployment that we were on, he, he did, I want to say six combat tours following our deployment wow. and, um, you know, picked up three combat action ribbons, uh, one of which is classified, uh, purple heart multiple bronze stars with a combat valor device on it. Um, he's the real deal. And, uh, he came back and, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, he was struggling with, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, I, I had been, I, as I talked to all my lieutenants, uh, on and off, uh, uh, you know, every few months, I'd say, um, I was in contact with him, uh, late last, let me think about this one, 2020, yeah, it was, it was late 2018 um, that uh, I was in contact with them. I was actually thinking about trying to do a reunion for either our officers or our officers and staff and COs or even the whole company. I was trying to get his uh, input on it. And I had no idea that he was struggling. And so in May of 2019, uh, May 6th, as a matter of fact, I got a call from one of my lieutenants. And um, he told me that our executive officer had taken his life. and you know, to me, uh, life is so precious and so fun and there's so much to live for and there's so many positive things. I struggled with why my executive officer had done it. And there is no answer, right? We can't, in the way that we think and the way that we function, we cannot answer the question as to why somebody decides to take their life. Um, But my thought was, maybe there's something that we can do. And I, I think that you were going to ask me about how, how I came about doing this Ted talk. Um, it, it's almost providential the way this happened. So my executive officer took his life on May 3rd of, uh, 2019. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, actually it was uh, May 3rd of, of, uh, 2018. And in, he, he was buried at Arlington, but Arlington Cemetery is so backed up, he couldn't be buried until September. Wow. And so in August of, uh, of 18, my company put out a call uh, for TED speakers. And so uh, TED had partnered with my company, and uh, they were going to select 13 uh, TED speakers. And so I think there was a total of uh, 1,600 applicants of which 900 actually completed the application. And the, the full application is you, you need to answer a, a series of questions from the TED Institute, and then you need to provide a one minute video. And the due date for this application was September 30th. So on September 25th of, uh, of 2018, when my executive officer was being buried at Arlington, um, uh, we buried him and we literally, uh, myself and one of my lieutenants, we walked, I don't know, 7,500 feet away from where we had just buried him. And we did uh, a one minute video uh, that I needed to submit as part of the application. And it was, it was a two take effort, right? So the first take I was talking, I didn't realize how quick a minute was. Right. And uh, I told my lieutenant, you know, raise your hand when there's 10 seconds left. And I think I had just said my name and he raised his hand. I was like, what? <laughs> so I, 
I, I realized how quick a minute was. And uh, I said, okay, we're, we're going to do one more take and I'm going to cram it all in. And I crammed as much information as I possibly could. If you can imagine the white headstones uh, all lined up and in a row behind me. Um, and uh, I submitted it on September 30th. And um, honestly, when I came back, I, I live in St. Louis, Missouri right now. When I came back from Arlington, I was reviewing the video and I thought, maybe I should retake it because there were a lot of stumbles in it and I, I didn't really convey the message, but something inside me said, you know what? Go with it. If it was meant to be, it'll be. And so I submitted it with that, that, uh, second take one minute video. And, um, I got a call in November, uh, to, uh, to do the talk. And actually I, I take it back. All this happened in 2019 because this year, 2020, wow, what a year it's been yeah, uh, so far. Uh, but I, I, uh, I got a call in November from the Ted Institute. They wanted to interview me further, uh, which we did. And then probably a week after that. So we're, we were into November, um, that, uh, that they told me I'd been selected. So, uh, you know, you go through the process. There must have been, I think, uh, for me, for, for me, there were, there were a, a lot of rehearsals that I had to do. And um, uh, finally, in February of this year, uh, I went out to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we utilized the Knights Theater. And uh, February 5th, I gave that TED Talk. And now it's been viewed how many times? Uh, in, in, in total... Um, and John, can, can you pause me for a second? My sure. dogs are about to, to go nuts. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry sure about that. I had somebody at the door. The dogs are about to explode. All good. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Uh, I've been recording these from my home. Now I'm actually in the co-working space, but I was recording them from home for a while and I had the dogs and babies and yeah, real yeah, life's happening right. in the background. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, total views, um, you, you know, it's in excess of a million. Wow. Uh, it's probably, you know, so it's on several different channels, right? It's been on Twitter. It's been on, uh, obviously, TED.com. It's been on Facebook. Um, it's now on YouTube. And so I'm going to say total views when you add up all those sites is some neighborhood of 1.2, uh, 1.3 million, somewhere in there. Wow. And so you record the one-minute kind of rehearsal or rather uh, uh, application video, right? You actually go and you – when did you decide what the topic will be? And then for our listeners, can you summarize what, what you actually covered in that TED talk? Cause I know you, you summarized some really stark and eye opening numbers in that TED talk that people need to be aware of. Yeah. So, um, when did I know I was going to do a TED talk? Uh, I didn't know until August of last year. And the reason I say that, and, and actually I didn't know until Ted actually selected me. I mean, they, they were the ones yeah. that uh, made the final decision. And that's when I knew I was going to give the Ted talk. But when my executive officer took his life and I'm sure you've seen on Facebook, 21 or 22 push-ups a day for 21 or 22 days, whatever that yeah, number I, is. And, I participated and, in the 22 push-up a day challenge. Yeah. And, and yeah. so um, for me, my executive officer is not the first person, first veteran I've known that's taken their life. Um, when I was on active duty uh, as a command duty officer, I responded to three suicide attempts. Um, you know, I've lost a number of my friends uh, to suicide. And so when my executive officer uh, took his life, that one hurt. 
And it, it hurt because he was a young, fit, good-looking guy, smart guy, had everything going for him. And nobody seemed to be giving a voice to these veterans. Nobody seemed to be speaking up and saying, wait a second, what's really happening? Why is it happening? What can we do differently with regard to how we uh, uh, bring a recruit into the service? How do we discharge them? What's the aftercare? What are we doing? And it just seems to me that somehow these veterans are getting lost in the system. And so when that opportunity to give a TED Talk came up, I thought, this is it. To me, it was divine providence that brought it forward for me. And there's no other way for me to explain it because it just all came together. And somehow when I did that one-minute video submission, I looked at it, I said, it really wasn't that great. But I said, you know what? If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And, and I sent it off and, and the universe kind of gave back and, and it came to fruition. When you look at the TED Talk and you look at the numbers, it's staggering. The numbers are absolutely staggering. You'll see that I, I uh, just from the studies, and, and by the way, everything in the talk has been fact-checked through various sources um, to confirm all the things I talked about. The truth of the matter is, uh, the number I used in my TED Talk was 115,000 of our veterans have died by suicide between uh, 2001 and 2019 uh, during the global war on terror. I believe the number is significantly higher. Uh, however, from a fact check standpoint, the 115,000 approximately was what the fact checkers were comfortable with. Now, why do I think that number is higher? The reason I think it's higher is because if some kid overdoses on a bench, First off, he's not going to get labeled as a suicide. Secondly, yeah. they may not even be uh, reported as a veteran if the body's not claimed. And so when you look at these facts and you look at these numbers, you say, okay, 115,000, let's just use that as the number. Um, I then looked and I said, well, how many have been killed in, killed in action? And uh, the, the report I looked at, which measured um, uh, global war on terror from October of 2001, when it really kicked off in our, in our hunt for Osama bin Laden, uh, to uh, November 18th of, of last year. And I use November 18th as a specific date because of the report. I, I don't want anybody who's been killed in combat to be left out. And I certainly don't want them to be right. a number. Sure. Uh, but there's been 5,440. So one of the things I know as a Marine, uh, and particularly as an infantryman, what's our combat effectiveness, right? What are our ratios and what do these numbers mean to me? And I look and I say, if we're losing 115,000 veterans and we've lost 5,440, what's the ratio? It's 21 to one. 21 veterans are dying by suicide for every one killed in action. What's our combat effectiveness there? It's not very it's effective. Not. Yeah. So whatever we're doing, we need to change because we clearly aren't looking at this in a way that's working and in a way that's effective. And, and here's the other thing too, and I didn't talk about this in TED Talk, but our veteran suicide rate is one and a half times that of the general population. So what are we doing that's causing it to be higher? Right. Secondly, what are we doing to bring it down so that's in line with our general population? And ideally, if we're really warriors and we're really physically tough and mentally tough. And, and, and as I like to think about it, maybe we're warrior monks. What are we doing to keep people's minds at ease and at peace 
right? So that they can live the fulfilling life that they were designed to live. And how do they become a productive member of our society? And so, you know, as I, as I look through these numbers and I looked at the way that we bring people into service, the way we discharge them, the way that we track data, we can do better. We can do significantly better than what we're doing now. And there's no doubt. And by the way, I don't think I have all the answers. In fact, I know I don't have all the answers. What I hope through this TED Talk is that people get engaged. They start talking about it openly because it can't be this little secret that we have because it's not a secret anymore. Technology has changed that and social media right. has changed that. And, and I'll tell you what, what is really interesting. Between giving the TED Talk on February 5th of this year and TED releasing it on their website on uh, May 22nd of this year, which was the uh, uh, weekend of Memorial Day, mm. the sergeant major of my battalion took his life. Oh, the, se wow. the senior enlisted man of my battalion. And we've got to do something. We've got to do something. Everybody is worthwhile. Everybody deserves a chance at life, a chance to have a fulfilling life. And everybody has something meaningful to add to this world. And we've got to get to these veterans that are in trouble. Hopefully we can get to them before they even leave the service. But if they've left the service and then encountered difficulties down the road, we've got to look at ways to get to them. We've got to look at ways to be proactive with them. We've got to look at ways that we can help them become the best, the best that they can be. Yeah. So I know on the TED talk, you listed some resources, one of which is veterans paths and very much appreciative for that. What, what other ways do you know of, or can you think of that we can help our veterans through these, these tough times when they are struggling with mental health challenges, stress, anxiety, depression, loss of identity, loss of purpose. You know, there's, there's the list just runs on and on, but what do you know about that we can introduce our veterans to? Yeah. So I, I think there's, there's several things that we can do, right? First is organizations like, like yours, Veterans Path. Um, we need to do a better job at getting the word out there that these organizations exist. That, that's the first and foremost. Um, secondly, I think it's important that these organizations are led by people like yourself. Uh, one of the things I have found is that uh, these veterans are in trouble. Um, it takes them a while to build trust with whoever it is that they're working with. And in some cases, that trust isn't built quick enough. In other cases, as they build trust, uh, they build trust with somebody and then perhaps they get transferred, they get relocated, whatever the case is, uh, and then they're back at ground zero trying to rebuild trust with somebody new or perhaps at that point it's too late. Um, so I, I think it's important that um, we get organizations like yours out in front of our service members and our veterans. Um, I think it's important too that as the service chiefs, the secretaries of the service, the Secretary of Defense and the Commander-in-Chief take a really hard look at this and say, maybe we're not accessing our recruits into the service in the best possible way. And I talked about that in a TED Talk. You know, we're going to have these recruits do drug tests, physical fitness tests, vocational tests. They're going to do all sorts of things uh, 
to be found qualified, why don't we have a standardized mental health exam for them on the way in? Right. On the, on the way out. Uh, when I got out, there was no mental health examination. Now, uh, people get a call or they'll get a check. Honestly, most veterans are like, yeah, forget it. I just want to get out. I just want to, I just want to yeah. drive out uh, that gate I mean, and, I, and I, I don't even want to look I in my rearview mirror. Right. right? Um, and so in, in my Ted talk, I referenced, uh, one veteran I talked to who, who got a call, he was stuck in traffic in LA and he's just like, just get me off this call. I just want to get home. I, I don't even want to talk to this guy. And he, he, and, and the other goofy thing was when he got that call, uh, it was some, uh, petty officer from the Navy. And, uh, he asked him, he said, are you so-and-so? And, uh, the veteran said, yes. He goes, can you verify your social security number for me? I mean, think about that. Yeah. I'm call, I'm, I'm receiving a call from somebody and they're going to ask me my social security number. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I got this very same call, um, probably three months ago and I was suspect. Um, I actually called them. I let them, you know, go to voicemail initially because I rarely answer the phone if I don't recognize the number and then uh, called them back from the voicemail. And I had them confirm several things before I gave them any information of mine, but I can totally see if you are stressed, if you're sitting in traffic, if you're having a bad day, the last thing you want to do is talk with somebody on the phone and then give them some, you know, vital piece of PII. Um, so yeah, that's, that definitely doesn't lend confidence to the conversation starting with that. Absolutely. And, and then, uh, you know, I, since I gave that, that talk, I, as you can imagine, I've been called by just a, a number of, uh, of people, uh, both people I've known, people I've, I've never met before. And uh, a dear friend of mine um, called me and he said, you know, I just saw your talk and wow. He goes, you're absolutely right. When I got out of the service, he goes, I, I was having some challenges. And, um, he, he actually admitted that uh, in his exit interview. And so they called him back for an in-person interview. The standard of care that he got was horrific. So he makes the time and the schedule to come back in to do an in-person interview with a, a mental health professional. While he's in that meeting, the, the mental health professional's phone rings. They pick it up. They answer it. They have a 20-minute conversation with, with something unrelated to healthcare. It was more of a personal call while he's oh. sitting there. And he thought to himself, I, I just, I need to get out of here. I mean, the standard of care was, was nothing Atrocious. what anybody would ever think is, is acceptable. I mean, could you imagine, like I, I've been in the civilian world now for 20 years. Could, could you imagine that I walk out and I go to a doctor's office and while I'm getting my annual physical, the doctor answers a call and takes a 20 minute personal call while I'm standing there. No way. No. I would never put up with it. Yet our veterans do. And, right. and nobody seems to think that there's something wrong with that. I, and I shouldn't say that. There certainly are people that care and, and want to uh, make things better. But from a standardized level of care, we can do better. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind. Yeah. And, and there's things that we can do to be more proactive as well. I mean, like, like you mentioned, the, the mental health survey or uh, questionnaire at the beginning when people first come into the military, that's a step. And then seeing how mental health status may change throughout the military service um, of, of an individual. So maybe administer that same test or something similar to it throughout their career so they can see trends, positive and negative, and then be proactive. Um, a lot of what we have out there is reactive. 
uh, and, and it's not enough for, for, for our sure. veterans. Uh, for sure. We need to we need to get ahead of it. Start doing things for not the people who not just the people who have hung up the uniform. So our, our quote unquote veterans, because I do I consider people who are still in the uniform veterans as well. But when when most people hear that term, they consider them the people who've hung up the uniform. But we want to do it for both those who are in uniform still and those who have hung up the uniform. And if we can get ahead of it, then I, I think that's where we're really going to make changes. Um, and that's another thing, Veterans Path. In in the past, what we have done is worked solely with those who have hung up the uniform. But we're going through a strategic pivot right now to bring what it is we're teaching to not only those who are out, but those who are still in as they're going through transition. We're actually trying to work with the service academies to get something set up to where we can teach these skills to the midshipmen and cadets so that it's not just something that's reactive, that they can actually build resilience so that when they do get stressed out, when they are anxious, when they are depressed, when they're experiencing PTSD or survivor guilt or whatever the case may be, then they have these tools in their proverbial tool bag there that they can use to, to be better mentally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely curious what else is out there that's proactive for, for our service members. Yeah. And so, you know, something I want to, I want to add on to what you just said. So in my course of getting ready for this Ted talk, I, I spoke with a friend of mine who's a therapist and um, you know, what she was telling me is that if you think of the brain as a muscle and you, you, every day you have to make millions of decisions and sometimes you get into a situation that's stressful and your brain has to be able to go through that to exercise it and to strengthen it so that when you get into something that's extremely stressful, you're able to cope and react with it. And one of the epidemics that's going on uh, with our service members and our veterans is uh, alcohol and drug abuse. And a, a couple things. One, when you use any type of self-medication, whether it's alcohol or drugs, um, basically what it does is it, it shuts your brain off and it doesn't it prevents your brain from having to deal with the really difficult stuff. So when you suddenly do get stressed out, the reaction that you have is significantly worse than what right. you would have done had you been working your brain out just like you work your body out, whether you're stressing it physically or whatever the case is. And um, that is something that when you, you know, when I look at some of these service members or veterans I know that have, have died by suicide, there has been alcohol abuse, there has been uh, drug abuse. And sometimes when they go to these hospitals to get treated, the underlying problem of, of alcoholism or drug addiction is not treated. So when they try to, to treat the, the post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever the mental health case is, they aren't starting at, at a measured baseline. They're starting somewhere that's inhibited because of the alcohol or drugs. And so the care they're not they're getting, it's not necessarily where they should be starting from. Right. And so the underlying condition needs to be treated first before you can even try to treat the, the mental health conditions. Um, and, you know, I look at, I, as I talked in my Ted talk, I had one of my Marines uh, died by overdosing on opioid pills and that, that should never have happened. It should right. never have happened.
Yeah, and, and was was he counted as a as a suicide or overdose, or do you know whether that, that was recorded uh, for, anywhere? For, for sure, it was an overdose. I don't think it was counted as a suicide. Yeah, yeah, and again, like you said at the beginning, how many of those are actually intended to be suicides, but are only counted as uh, as overdoses? Not that yeah. not trying to minimize the overdose, but where should those numbers be tracked? Well, right. And that's, that's, I think, part of the problem is we have got to get a better tracking system. Um, in fact, the reports that I used for my TED Talk were, were from 2017, so they're two years old. Well, why don't we have up-to-date data in, in, a, in a time where everything can be fed real world? Right. Why don't we have the systems in place that when a suicide or, or a veteran dies from suicide, as soon as it is entered, that that data, that statistic gets reported within 24 or 48 hours to the uh, right. Department of Veteran Affairs. And, and I think, too, if we started looking at, um, you know, what units have these high suicide rates and start looking at why do they have high suicide rates, you know, what's happening, what, what are the data points around it, all of a sudden in future action, in future conflict, we're prepared and we know and we know what, what to expect from a mental right. health standpoint. And I think too, we need to get, we need to get the stigma of mental health out of the culture of the, of the military, yeah. because your met, your mental health is just as important, if not more important than your physical well-being. Right. without it, you can't function. Right. Yeah. And that's a conversation that I've had uh, with numerous uh, guests is that they struggled with mental health challenges themselves, but they were afraid to bring it up because they thought they were going to lose their security clearance because they thought how, uh, how their friends would perceive them, um, would be completely different and how that stigma is there. And it's just like you mentioned, maintaining your mental health is as important, if not more so as your physical health. But when somebody goes to the gym to get into shape, nobody judges them. Well, if you're going to go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist because you're trying to maintain a good level of mental health, instantly people are like, well, what's wrong with you? And right. that's obviously something that we don't want people thinking. We don't want people thinking that something's wrong with us. And even if there is something, I won't say it's wrong with you, but if there's a challenge that you're experiencing, there's nothing wrong with that to go and that's seek true. help. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, I think that's a huge sign of strength. It's a great sign of a great leader if you're willing to step up because, as you said, if your mental health is struggling, you can't do anything else. If you're a leader, it's upon you to get your mental mind, your, your mind right. And I think as a leader, it's also incumbent upon you to, to show that you're doing that for yourself so that those you're leading, they do it for themselves too. It's not something that you hide. So yeah, absolutely, it's a stigma that we have to break down. And again, that's another reason we do this this podcast is try to help to break that stigma of, of seeking mental health support because it is so important. Absolutely, and and you know you think about it from a cultural standpoint. Um, would anybody in and I'm I'm just going to speak as a Marine. I'm sure you could talk as a Navy SEAL. Would anybody that you've ever served with have a problem with the concept of being a warrior monk or a, a, a warrior a Zen artist? You know, somebody that is physically fit, uh, ready to step into harm's way and help people in whatever manner, but yet at the same time is contemplative enough and is able to take a step back 
reflect on themselves and reflect on others to, to bring the best out of each other. I, I can't think of anybody who wouldn't want to have a culture like that. No. Yet we can't, we can't get there unless we acknowledge that mental health is just as important, important as the physical health. So as a Marine, I might've spent, literally, I might've spent 10 plus hours a week working out, maybe more. Right. Why didn't I devote that much time to my mental health uh, while I was in the service or even a fraction of it? Because the, yeah. the reality is we didn't spend any of it uh, on mental health. You try to steer clear of it, I'm sure. I mean, absolutely. I've spoken, I've spoken with service members on the show that as soon as they went to seek mental health, they were ostracized by their battalion XO or, or whomever it may be um, because of that. And that's, again, going back to the as leaders, you need to not only seek it out for yourself, but you need to allow the time and space for your, your service members to do that for themselves, too. Absolutely. And, and that's, th that goes back to changing the culture. And right. um, I, I think it's something that uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we've got some work to do. And, and I'll tell you, you know, the other thing too is um, people who self-medicate, people that abuse alcohol and drugs, they are 120 times more likely to take their life. And I look back at my time in the Marine Corps, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, there were a lot of times it was work hard, play hard mentality. And sure. Uh, that's something else I think we need to take a look at. And, you know, I know that 18, 19, 20 year old, uh, that, that cap young captain, that young Lieutenant is going to look and say, who's that old guy talking about that? We're still out here having fun. That's true. But I'm here to tell you that 20 years from now, you might look back at it a little differently because now you've got the experience and the wisdom to know that maybe some of your friends, uh, were affected deeply by it and, and wound up, they didn't make it because right. of that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you are listening to the show and, and you are in, in that age group that Chuck just referenced, you know, uh, a, a young, hard-charging, brand-new service member who's out there living it up, I mean, I, I, I did that myself. I was a prior enlisted Navy guy, and, uh, you know, I, I came from Louisiana where at the time the drinking age was 18. And, uh, you know, I, I came into the military and suddenly it wasn't. And... Uh, I had partied hard and I even partied hard the, the first year that I was enlisted. Um, but looking back on it now, just as Chuck said, if, if I had somebody, if I could speak to myself at, you know, 20 years ago, uh, what would I tell myself? I would tell myself, Hey, back off on this. There's better things to be done. So many of the mistakes that I made uh, in life, in my service were times that I was drinking too hard, partying too hard. And, uh, and then what happened after that? And then friends of mine, as Chuck had, had mentioned there, friends of mine through our service, they are no longer with us because they partied too hard. So it wasn't directly necessarily because they're partying, although some were, you know, drinking and driving and getting into a, an accident there and losing their life that way. But what did they do to their mind by doing that, by taking it too hard, playing too hard? And then what did that end up doing to them throughout their, their entire career, throughout their lives, and ultimately where it may have ended in suicide. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, I could, I can definitely see the 18, 19, 20 year olds not listening uh, because they're, they're being spoken to by the, the senior older generation, I guess. Um, but it's important. There is a reason that we're, we're saying this because we've lived it and we have that wisdom. We have that experience. So yeah, and, thanks for that, Chuck. 
Yeah, and, and you, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The 18, 19, 20-year-old kids and, and even the young officers, they're going to listen to this. They're going to see it and like, yeah, whatever. That's fine. I get it. I get it. I understand that. But I, what I want them to remember is that they're going to see a friend of theirs that is struggling with alcohol or drug abuse. And their choice is going to be to either ignore it or try to get that person the help that they're going to need. Because eventually they're going to go, that person that's abusing the alcohol or drugs, they're going to go down a path that they can't come back from and they can't recover from. And, right. and I've, I've seen it time and time again. And unfortunately, that's what, that's what comes with having the years that we have on our bodies. Um, and it's something that can be prevented if we, we step in in time. Right, right, definitely. Well, Chuck, uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, if, uh, if you have one other thing to, to tell our audience, what would it be that you wanted them to hear? I just want, if there's anybody listening to this podcast that's in trouble or in need of help, I just want you to know that your life is worth it. I want you to know that we've never met, but I love you in a way that a brother loves his family and things are going to be okay. Things will be okay. And we just need to find the right place for you to get the help that you need. And an organization like Veterans Path is one of those places. And I hope that if you're listening to this, you reach out to them, you reach out to somebody that can get you into the place that you need to be. Your life is worth living. And please, please, please remember that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that too, Chuck. That was, uh, that's powerful and, and so true. So very true. So I'll make sure that a link to your TED talk is in the, the show comments, both on YouTube and the audio version of this when we release it. Um, and if people wanted to get a hold of you directly, Chuck, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way to do that would be to uh, either email me uh, and I'll give out my email address uh, cpsmith144 at gmail.com. Okay. Um, and let's just leave it at that. Let's just see what comes in from that. Perfect. Perfect. I am sure you've been overwhelmed with, uh, with all that like you mentioned before. Lots of people have been reaching out to you since the TED talk, but it's important the message that you have and it shows that your message resonates with so many people. So thank you for doing the TED talk. Thanks for being with me here today. It's been great reconnecting with you, and, uh, and, and I very much believe in the message that you have to share with, with others. So, yeah, thank you again, Chuck. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, any way I can help you, please let me know. Will do. Well, until we speak again, stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks, John. Take care. For our listeners, thanks for listening to our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We, too, are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends and family. And remember, listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.